Renaissance, what's up? What's up? It's good to be back, man. I haven't been back during the pandemic, uh, uh, but um, if you're new, I am not new. You know what I'm saying? It's family, and uh, it's good. It's good to be here. Uh, I'm really, really excited to be here this weekend. We came up on Friday to celebrate uh, with Jordan and Jess, and uh, for, for all of the young folks that are in the room, uh, one of the landmarks uh, that, uh, that shows you you're getting older is when you start to have middle-aged friends. You know what I'm saying? I'm not 40 yet. Jordan is. And so, <laughs> so, but that's how I know I'm approaching, you know what I'm saying, uh, elderly years because now I have middle-aged friends. And so, uh, but uh, now nah, real talk, one of the things I say particularly to the men of Renaissance, uh, and I'm not, uh, I'm from, anybody else from the D.C. area in here? Okay, cool. So everybody, not, people are not going to know what I'm about to say, but uh, I'm not sicing this at all. If you don't know what that means, just ask somebody from the DMV. Uh, but, and I wrote this, Jordan, in your uh, encouragement card Friday. Um, grew up, amazing father, amazing family, all of that. I can genuinely say Jordan is probably the first man in my life where I was able to see a model of emotional health. And so, yeah, clap it up. Um, and I don't, I don't say that because he'd be crying all the time. Um, but uh, see, that was my emotional unhealth, that I would joke about that, you know what I mean? Um, but to integrate all parts of who I am and to understand that being tapped into what you feel is not weakness, but it's actually strength and it's wisdom and it's maturity and uh, I've, I've literally learned that watching him and watching his growth and trying to pace myself uh, after watching, watching his growth. And I'm sure my wife is like, amen. Um, but uh, so I love you, man. And I'm uh, happy birthday, bro. I'm glad to, to be here with you. Um, all right. Uh, Mark chapter two. We're going to dive in. Mark chapter two is where we're going to be. And I know y'all have been in this uh, series on real love. I've been tracking with it, listening to the podcast. Um, and uh, and uh, I'm excited about what we've all really been learning uh, together about relationships. And what we're going to share today is, uh, like Jess said, it's just to push it further, to apply it, not just in like dating relationships, but just broadly speaking. And what I want to talk about is uh, how many of us tend to understand what it means to follow Jesus. Now, I know this is not all of us, but it's a lot of us. And it certainly was how I used to think about following Jesus. So imagine for a second a pie chart. Like it's just a circle and there's pieces of the pie. It represents our life, different parts of our life. And so you have your work life, right? You got all the things in your career path that you kind of have as a part of your life. And you have, you got your social life, you got your family life, you got your, your money life, you know what I mean? You got finances and all of that type of stuff. And so we kind of build out our life or we're, we're pushing, pursuing whatever it, that perfect portfolio looks like for our life. And then here's how it happens for many of us. We realize something is missing. Whether everything is sweet in our life and it's good, but something's missing, or we feel like the pain of something missing and we wonder. We interact with Renaissance, we come to church, we watch online, we watch a sermon on YouTube, we talk to a friend, and we, we wonder, is Jesus the missing piece? Is Jesus like that? that missing part of my portfolio to kind of round out the life that I've designed. 
And we do that on a personal level, but this is also how Jesus gets adopted into different religions. And so if you go to different areas or talk to people who practice more animistic or ancestral religions, where, where everything in nature is ultimately controlled by some kind of supernatural spirit, in those religious kind of frameworks, Jesus just becomes another rival spirit. So Jesus is just like a top draft pick. He's, he's, you, kinda, you, you add Jesus into your team of spirits in order to, to, to move in life and accomplish kind of what you, what you want. Other religious frameworks see Jesus a different way, as a moral teacher or, or like in Islam and other religions, as a special prophet. A lot of secular people see Jesus as a sort of brand ambassador for tolerance and inclusivism. You've probably seen like the coexist stickers with the different religions and the cross is just one of many. And that's not just to say that we all should coexist peacefully. That's a statement about all of these different religions being equally true. Which, to be totally honest with you, that's us saying we won't even let them speak for themselves because these different religions are going to say conflicting things. But we just add kind of Jesus into, into these different religions. Some of us progressive folks, we see Jesus as a, an inspiring revolutionary. I, I tap into Jesus on that front a little bit, right? Jesus, uh, who came in and was living under the oppressive Roman Empire, and Jesus in his ministry in life and his ministry through the church, fixing world problems through social justice and, and speaking truth to power. And then conservatives, right, might see Jesus as like a, their culture warrior, like sovereignly defending their moral or political values, Sometimes we can try to cram Jesus into just our personal expectations and we treat Jesus like he's a sort of self-help coach. Jesus is a good look, right? He just, he comes to kind of give us some tips to, to kind of upgrade our life a little bit. Or, or maybe we see him as like almost like a cosmic like concierge, right? Like, like he's an he's a Uber driver, he's an Uber Eats, you know what I'm saying? He's seamless, whatever y'all use in New York. Like he just... Like, he can make all my dreams come true. Whenever I, whatever I need, I can manifest it through Jesus. And the problem is, all of those ideas have some seed of truth in them about Jesus, but none of them capture all that Jesus revealed himself to be. You cannot fit Jesus into your pre-existing expectations and your predetermined plans. And if you're taking notes, watching online or here in the room, here's, here's the main point. We're going to dive into scripture. Here's the main thing I want you to think about. You can't experience what Jesus wants you to experience by just adding him to the life you've already decided to live. You can't experience what Jesus wants you to experience by just adding him to the life that you've already decided to live. He didn't just come to update your life. He came to give you new life. He came to change your life. And this is what Jesus is going to address right here in Mark chapter 2. So we're going to read from verse 18 to 22, and then we'll, we'll unpack this together. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. 
The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now let me help you understand the context of what's happening here. There's, there were these different factions, in ancient, these different groups in, in ancient Israel at the time. And we don't have time to unpack all of it, but just know they represented different convictions and traditions. And two of the groups in ancient Israel are mentioned right here in the text. You got the Pharisees. Some of us are familiar with the Pharisees. Jesus interacts with the Pharisees all throughout the Gospels. They were like this small fraternity of very conservative Jewish leaders. And then you had John's disciples. These are disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the one who he he came proclaiming the, the coming of the Messiah, the kingdom of God. He recognizes Jesus. And uh, John gets arrested, he get, he's killed, and, and his disciples kind of continue with his message. Now, what the Pharisees and John's disciples have in common is that fasting was a very strict discipline for both of those groups. And fasting, if, if, if just to, for those of you who might be new to, to, to religion in general, don't understand it, fasting is uh, uh, kind of abstaining from eating in order to focus on a, a, a deeper spiritual need. Or it's, it's using your physical hunger to help you focus on a spiritual hunger. So you fast, every time you feel a hunger praying, it's a prompt, right, to pray. This is what fasting is. And in this context, so you notice Jesus is not against fasting in and of itself. Later on, he'll talk about his disciples fasting. But the Mosaic law only required fasting once a year. This was on the Day of Atonement. All, everybody in Israel would fast. But there were at least three other kinds of fast that people would participate in. So they would fast to mourn national tragedies. Uh, they would fast in times of crisis, like in plague or in famine. And the third kind of fast is here in Mark chapter 2, where an individual or a particular group would decide to fast for any number of reasons. I mean, they would fast for all kinds of stuff, but the Pharisees, they took it to another level. The Pharisees and John's disciples, they didn't just fast once a year or occasionally. They fasted twice a week. Every Monday and Thursday, they went above and beyond the the Mosaic law and expected everybody else to do that. They fasted every Monday and Thursday. And the summary version of why they fasted so much is that they were fasting as a way of mourning over sin the sins that Israel had been embracing, mourning over sin and longing for a Savior. They were looking for the Messiah to come to purify his people, to, to, to free them from the oppression of Rome. Mourning for, over sin, longing for a Savior. And in their minds, anybody who was serious about God's law would be fasting as much as, as they fasted. But when you read the Gospel of Mark, just from chapter 1, if you just naturally read in the flow, you'll see right before this, And some of y'all know this story. Jesus and his disciples are feasting with tax collectors and sinners. Like the lowest of low in society, they are literally having a feast with tax collectors and sinners. And so in Mark, you're feeling this contrast. Jesus and his disciples are feasting. John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting. 
So you can understand why they, in verse 18, come to Jesus with this question. Jesus, if you're so holy, if you're such a prominent religious leader, then how come we're fasting and you're feasting? Who's the more spiritual one? Like, that's the question they're coming to Jesus with. And so Jesus responds. He, he answers their question with an analogy. And if you're new to the Bible, just know, Jesus don't never answer a question directly. It is extraordinarily frustrating. You ask him a question, he'd be like, look at the bird. I don't want to look at the birds, Jesus. I didn't ask you about no birds. I don't have no questions about no birds. But this is how he always responded. So, so they ask him, why aren't y'all fasting? In other words, why are you not fitting into my religious expectations? And Jesus responds with a wedding, a piece of clothing, and wineskins. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now let me explain this for a second, and let me just give you a heads up. I'm going to spend a little bit longer on this than the other two, because I know y'all going to try to budget my time. I'm just telling you now, you know what I mean? Like I'm not, it's, it, we're going to be good. We're going to get out here for dinner. <laughs> All right. So he's saying, so I want you to I want, keep, keep the question in mind. Why y'all not fasting? And, and Jesus says, I want you to think about a wedding. Now, one of the reasons, just like Renaissance, one of the reasons I love being a part of a multi-ethnic church is because, see, I, I grew up in, I didn't grow up in a predominantly, I grew up in an all-black church, 100%, 100% black. And, and so when I stepped into, like, the, the multi-ethnic church, there was a couple of things. One, I had to get used to acoustic guitar. I wasn't familiar with that. The second thing was, it was a beautiful thing that I got to go to all these weddings of people from different ethnic cultures. Y'all. Have y'all been to a Nigerian wedding before? Okay, cool. So I went to a Nigerian wedding for the first time, and I felt like my whole life to that point had been utterly meaningless. <laughs> because, have y'all been to, anybody know what the money dance is? So I go to this wedding. Let me tell y'all what the money dance is. So the couple is in the middle of the room, in the dance floor, whatever it is, and, and the whole crowd, because Nigerians be having like 700 people at their weddings. So the whole crowd... Is, is circling them, the elders and everybody. They are literally tossing dollar bills, not like singles, like tossing dollar bills at the couple, stuffing their pockets. Somebody's full-time job is to collect money off the floor and just hold on to it for the couple. And I was like, what have I been going? I haven't been going to weddings. This is how y'all do it in Nigeria? I felt robbed. I, recently, I officiated a, a, Chinese, a wedding with, with two Chinese people. Y'all, they had 10 courses. A 10 course. And this, is, this was not tapas. This was not like a little bit of goat cheese with some garnish on it, and that was a course. No, that's false advertisement. That's not a meal, okay? And so their first course, it was like ribs. I was like, where do we go from here? You started with ribs. You know what I'm saying? Where, where else are we going to go? It's a festive occasion. And so in ancient Jewish culture, y'all, these were like exuberant celebrations. Weddings would last for seven days. And so I want you to just imagine for a second being a groomsman and choosing a wedding as a time to fast. 
choosing a time of celebration to be the time that you choose to express like mourning in that moment, it wouldn't have made any sense. Now, remember why, why the, John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting. They're mourning over sin and they're longing for a Savior and Jesus is like the Savior is here. You're longing for a Savior, but the disciples understand that the Savior has come. That right now, there is coming a time where it's going to be time for fasting and mourning. Now is not that time. Now they are in the presence of their Savior, and they are celebrating. Because the coming of Jesus was the beginning of a brand new era of the kingdom of God. That God was in the process of fulfilling all of his promises. He had come to establish something new. He came to establish the new covenant. And so when you understand all of what the new covenant included, I mean, it included this new relationship with God that all of us can have. You look at verse 19 when he compares himself to a bridegroom. That seems like a nice analogy to us, but for the original hearers, it would have been blasphemy. And let me show you why. Isaiah 54, verse 5. Listen to this. It says, for your maker, your creator, God, is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. You hear what he's saying? He's saying the creator, God, is your husband. Talking about this covenant relationship that God has with his people, Israel. And so fast forward now back to to Mark chapter 2. When Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, it's not just a random analogy. He's taking a description of God from the Old Testament, and he's saying, that's me. He's saying, I'm the one that the ancient prophets have been talking about. I'm the one you've been learning about in synagogue. I'm the one you've been praying to and pouring your heart. I'm the one that you've been waiting for for all of this time. Jesus was God in person, God who had come in the flesh, fully God, fully human in a way we can't completely comprehend, but he came in person to be with his disciples. And so it made sense for them to be feasting in the presence of God. And he came not only to be with them, not only to reveal to them what God truly is like, but he came ultimately to die for their sins and for our sins. And he alludes to that in verse 20 when he says, he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is, listen to this, is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. That phrase taken away, it means to be violently snatched away. He's talking about his death. And ultimately his resurrection and his ascension. And he's saying that's going to be the day when fasting resumes and we mourn and we wait again for the the Savior to come back. And what that means, y'all, listen, what that means is God is not just powerful. He's personal. Listen, God is not just a man upstairs. He's not not just like the almighty. He is almighty for sure, but he's, he's not just some force. Like God is not just powerful. He is personal. He came in person, in person to establish this new relationship that we can have with God that is based on the work that he came to do in his death and in his resurrection. And when you think about it, y'all, like our sense of intimacy with a person is dependent on our confidence in our relationship with them. And see, y'all been talking about the relationship series, but I mean, I know y'all, 
this is why some of us, this is explaining some of what's going on in our, in, our, in our situationships. You know what I'm saying? Like in our dating relationships, because you're in this situation, right, where you feel a, a way about somebody and you're not sure they feel the same way about you. And, it is, and this is not just true in dating relationships. This can be true of our, with our parents or whatever. You is very difficult to feel a sense of intimacy with somebody when you're not sure where you stand with them. When you don't have any confidence in that relationship, it's hard to feel a very personal connection and a sense of intimacy because you always feel vulnerable. You don't know where you stand. You're always hesitating. And some of us struggle to experience intimacy in our relationship with God because our confidence before God is based on the wrong thing. Their confidence before God was based on how well they kept up the Mosaic law. None of us can fully do that. If your confidence before God is based on how well you're doing, you're never going to be able to really experience intimacy. Let me tell you a secret. We don't experience intimacy with God as pastors and worship leaders or whatever because we're always doing everything we're supposed to be doing. No. Like our sin disrupts that sense of intimacy with God. But here's what the gospel does. When we mess up, instead of that pushing us away from God, We have confidence not in what we do, but in the finished work of Jesus, what he has done. And so our sin now pulls us closer to God as we humble ourselves before him. We confess that and we trust that he receives us as a son and a daughter. Amen. Amen. And so that confidence before God, that intimacy with God is something that Jesus wants us to experience, this new relationship with him. And in that relationship, we get to experience a new power from God, the power of the Holy Spirit. This was one of the core promises in the New Testament. You can read about this in Ezekiel 36, where the Holy Spirit would not just come temporarily to empower certain people, But the Holy Spirit would come in the new covenant to permanently indwell all of God's people. And the Holy Spirit would transform us from the inside out. This is the power of the Holy Spirit, not just changing what we do, but the Holy Spirit comes to change what we want to do. See, that's a whole different way of interacting with God, where God is not just trying to, to coerce us into obedience, right? But he's at work changing our hearts and we begin to hate what he hates and want what he wants and love what he loves. All of a sudden, it feels weird at first, but we begin to love to actually worship God and to give him the praise that he's due. All of a sudden, we begin to desire holiness and purity before God and we want the wisdom of God. This is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us and out of, a, out of the overflow of transformed hearts, we can live transformed lives. His power works in us, and then it works through us as we interact with people, as we live out our callings, as we live on mission by the power of the Holy Spirit so that other people can come to know and experience the grace of God like we have. And so we have this new relationship with God and power of God, and then God gathers us all together into this new family. This is what they didn't understand. They thought it was all about just the Jewish people and this covenant relationship with the Jews. But God is like, I sent Jesus to bring all kinds of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and background into the same family the same way through the blood of Jesus. And together as this new family, we get to look forward to this new future with God. 
Like Jesus came to bring this new future. So you think about Jesus' time with his disciples. Remember, he's going to be taken away. So his time with his disciples wasn't actually like a, a wedding ceremony. It was more like wedding planning. Because he's going to go away and he's going to come back. Now, some of us know what this is like. If you've, if you've been engaged, if you're married now or been engaged before, you know how couples, they get to, they get to taste test the, the food at the reception, which just heads up is a cause of conflict. It might be your first significant <laughs> argument. You know what I'm saying? I, I, that's nervous laughter from a lot of couples in the room. Right? But it's fun. You get, to, you get a foretaste of what you're going to get to enjoy at the wedding reception. And so you think about Jesus' ministry with his disciples. And this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus' ministry with his disciples was a preview of what they and all people who trust in Jesus would experience when the fullness of the kingdom of God comes. And so you think about Jesus with his disciples healing the sick, caring for them in real time, physically healing them in that moment, but pointing to the day we won't even need no miracles of healing. Pointing to the day when there will be no more sickness, no more cancer, no more COVID, no, no more sickness, no more of that pain and suffering and that we've experienced or people we love have experienced. When he was casting out demons, it was a preview of that day when he would finally and fully defeat all spiritual forces of evil. When he was caring for and loving people who were marginalized, it was, it was, it was a preview of the day when all kinds of people would, would have equal access and be equal brothers and sisters in the family of God for all of eternity. And not just the good stuff, y'all. When he was when he turned over tables and he was cursing fig trees, it was a preview of the day when finally justice will be served. Because God is a judge and he promises that he will judge sin and all those who embrace it. Our personal sin and the public sin of injustice, like he will judge that one day. And, and his presence with his disciples was a preview of the day when those who trust in Jesus We'll see God and be with him face to face. You ever had questions or doubts for God? You ever had that feeling where you were like, God, you, I know you can, like, you don't, we don't have to do all of this faith stuff. You could show up in person. You could speak to me right now in a way I can't deny. You ever felt that before? That's why I can't wait for that day. When we no longer walk by faith, we walk by sight because we are in the physical presence of God. There's no barrier. We see him face to face and all of our questions in that moment finally answered in the presence of God. All of our longings finally fulfilled in the presence of God. We'll realize in that moment, God didn't forget. God wasn't gone. We don't care more about suffering than God does. He promises, he promises to one day fix all of it. So there's all of this stuff, all of this stuff that Jesus wants us to experience, the same way he wanted them to experience. All, all these benefits and blessings of the new covenant and a new relationship with God, a new power from God, and this new family of God, this new future with God, all this stuff that Jesus came to bring, and he wanted all these people to experience, and he wants you to experience, and he wants me to experience. But there's a problem. It's a problem. And he points to that problem in these last couple of verses that we're going to wrap up with in verse 21. Listen to what he says. 
Listen to what he says. He says, I came to, to do all of this new stuff in your life. He says, but no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And you know exactly what he's talking about. Like, oh, like fabric, it, it shrinks after you wash it. Now, I'm told that at a certain quality of clothing, it doesn't happen. But the way me and my budget are set up, like if I wash something dry, it's going to shrink. You know what I'm saying? And so like, we know what this is like. You take, you take fabric, it's old, it, it shrinks. So if you take a, a, a new piece of fabric and you try to use that to patch up something old that's already shrunk, when that shrinks, it's going to pull at the seams. And it'll tear the garment and it'll make it worse. And this is the picture. Every time I think about this passage, I think about this picture of my, of my son. And clearly, <laughs> that, that, his, those pajamas were not designed for somebody his size. <laughs> and this is, Jesus is saying, listen, the old covenant under the Mosaic law, it was never designed to contain God's new covenant work. This is what he's teaching his disciples. This is what he's teaching that John's disciples and the Pharisees, and he's making the same point in verse 22. He says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So let me, let me explain, because we don't do, you know, wineskins. Like, we got wine bottles. Some of us do wine boxes. We do, that's a whole other conversation <laughs> and seminar, you know what I'm saying? But... Wine, like wineskins then were, were kept, they were stored in, in bottles that were literally made out of animal skin. And the problem is old wineskins, after a while, they became brittle and hard and, and dry. And so if you put new wine that hasn't been fermented yet in old wineskins, what's going to happen? It's like shaking up a soda bottle. The pressure builds up inside. It'll burst old, dry, hard wineskins. You got to pour new wine into new wineskins that are soft and flexible, that can expand right through the fermentation process. In other words, he's saying you can't fit something new into something old that was never designed for it. So let me, let me give you a more modern illustration, and we'll, we'll, we'll land with this, because wineskins, clothing, what are we talking about, Jesus? All right, let me, let me upgrade this, 21st century. Some of y'all won't recognize this. We got some Gen Z or whatever. Just, so this was like one of the first cell phones, right? It's one, like this, for real. Now, some of y'all don't know who that is. You don't need to know. Don't even worry about it. Just ask, ask someone, oh, ask Jordan, you know what I'm saying? Um, and, uh, but what I want you to see is the size of the phone. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, so for my, like, OGs in the room, like, I, what, I, this was a little bit before my time. Did, y'all, did they sell cell phone backpacks or something? Like, how did y'all care? How is this a mobile phone, right? Look, would you look at the size of that phone. Now, they evolved, like these tech companies or whatever, and then they came out with this Motorola joint, right? Oh, some of y'all like, yeah, we coming up in the generations. Y'all like, yeah. Gen Z still like, I'm confused. Yeah, it was an antenna. You had to pull the antenna up, Right? Just Google antenna. You, got, you had to pull that joint up, right? And what I want you to notice is the screen. You're like, what screen? Exactly. That screen is so small. Imagine trying to tell you can't. You're gonna, it's going to be LOL. That's it. That, you, you can't get nothing else on that text. Here's what I want you to think about. 
Imagine trying to download today's technology onto one of them old devices. Y'all read about Facebook and the metaverse and all this stuff? Imagine trying to use one of them phones for the metaverse. Won't work. Won't work. It wasn't designed for it. Here's the takeaway, y'all. Here's the takeaway. Some of us, some of us are trying to download Jesus into a life that was never designed for him. It was never designed for him. You've already made all your decisions. You've already decided everything you believe. And so you judge and evaluate Jesus based on what you believe instead of evaluating your beliefs based on what Jesus reveals in his word. You've already decided how you're going to live. And so you, and just like I did, pick and choose what you'll obey and what you'll integrate into your life from Scripture based on your predetermined decisions. And here's what I think God is saying to me and to all of us here watching online right now. You cannot experience what Jesus wants you to experience by just adding him to the life you've already decided to live. And if you hear anything today, I don't have time to get into my story and all of that. I'm just telling you, just let me be a testimony and a witness What Jesus wants you to experience is better than what you've designed for yourself. His truth is better than your truth. His life, the new life, the abundant life that he invites you into is better than the life that you kind of laid out for yourself. And so if I want 5G... I just can't get it on one of them phones. I have to make a choice. I can't hang on to the old Motorola joint and experience 5G. It just does not, it's incompatible. I have to trade this in. I can't be like, oh, can we just swap out the antenna and then can I get 5G? No, dog, it ain't. (laughs) No. I got to trade the whole thing in. In order to experience this, you have to surrender your life. You got your expectations and your plans and your desires and your beliefs here, and you have the life that Jesus has designed for you, that he came to bring you here. And maybe he'll bring some of this stuff over here, maybe. But he's ultimately the one because he's Lord who gets to make that choice. And we trust him enough to trade all of this, to trade our life for the life that he came to bring us. And this is for people who are here and watching online who need to make a decision for the first time to put your trust in Jesus. Jesus, I'm not playing games no more. We're not going to just do no church thing and just go through the motions. Like, Jesus, I am surrendering myself to you, your death for the forgiveness of my sins, your resurrection life as the new power for my life. You need to make that decision today for the first time. But there's others of us who've been following Jesus, and this process never stops because Jesus is always wanting 
to, to do something new because we can't handle it all at the same time. And so he's saying, listen, would you let me change your parenting? Would you stop trying to fit, just kind of fit me into how you've already decided to do it? Like you, you're getting married now, and, but you still got a whole bunch of boys. You still want to live the same life that you and your boys been living. But you're a married man now. And you like, Jesus, you come into my marriage. And Jesus is like, I, I want to, but you got to give me your life. If your money, you're, does Jesus, does, have you given Jesus authority over your budget? And how you spend your money? Have you given Jesus authority over your schedule? How you spend your time? You can't experience what Jesus wants you to experience by just adding him to the life that you've already decided to live. And listen, he will meet you where you are. That little piece where you're like, I think this is the missing piece. Jesus, can you? He will meet you right there. Right where you, just like he did for me. But here's what he's going to do. And for some of you, you sense him doing this already. He's going to say, all right, I'm meeting you where you are because I love you. I see you. But then he's going to invite you, all right, now I need you to give me the whole thing. I need you to give it all. I need you to give I'm worthy of it all. And whatever Jesus asks of you, I promise you, it will never, never, never compare to what he gives you as you fully surrender your life or whatever parts of your life right now you sense Jesus calling you to surrender to him. Let's trade up. Let's give it up and receive everything that Jesus has for us. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for, God, what you've done really first and foremost in my life. God, I thank you. I thank you that I've experienced all of this to be true. And I continue to, Lord. There are areas of my life right now, God, where you want to do a new work and I'm still clinging to and holding on to my old habits and old ways of thinking and old ways of living. And, Lord, that's true for all of us. God, would you meet us where we are? Thank you that you're gracious and gentle and tender. You are so patient. God, you could have given up on us so long ago. But you've been patiently waiting and working, God, for us to come to a point of full surrender before you. And I pray that for anybody that needs to surrender for the first time and fully trust in you and be forgiven and be changed or those who need to surrender in some particular area of their life or their thinking. Lord, I pray you would do that work. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.